listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. A reading from Mark chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God, We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Yes, it's good to, good to hear you and good to see you. All of you are here and all of you that are at home. Uh, as, as Carol said and we sang, uh, that was to Angela, uh, my wife. So Angela, um, today's her birthday. And it's also Hannah's birthday. So we have six girls, but daughter number two was born on her mom's birthday. We planned that, of course. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, it's definitely a holiday in the, in the Waddell household. When I hear these passages of scripture, the first one that talks about Jesus' authority, and the second one where Paul's trying to help the Corinthians work out what is the authority, like 
there seems to be some rules here, right? Rules that you have to follow, whether or not you eat food sacrificed to idols. So the idea that Jesus cast out demons or that Paul taught his church about how to handle issues like food that had been sacrificed to idols, that might seem as foreign to us as possible. Like, I don't know when is the last time one of you ran into a demon, or if you were at Publix when you were purchasing your meat recently, did you talk to the butcher about whether or not the food had been sacrificed to an idol? I don't know about you, but I didn't. So both of those, seem, both of those stories seem to be a bit distant uh, from us. And so the question might be, well, how would texts like that have any sort of application in our lives? There's another passage that's often paired with these. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. We didn't read it, but it's a story about Moses that says that Moses, who's the great prophet, uh, will one day, of course, die. But God in the future, at some point, will raise up another prophet like Moses. Now, Moses, of course, we know Moses as a lawgiver. He's the one to whom God gave the Ten Commandments, and then Moses gave the Ten Commandments to to the Israelites. And so we see this connection between authority and law and rules and people like Moses, of course. So Moses is, in a lot of ways, in the Jewish mindset, the quintessential prophet. There might have been some prophets before him. Abraham was called a prophet. Obviously, there are lots of prophets after him, from Samuel to Elijah to Elisha to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. I mean, there's lots, right? Lots of prophets. But Moses is like the quintessential one. And it's a combination of those two things, right? Moses is the prophet and the lawgiver. And then the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 about one day God will raise up another prophet like Moses comes true, of course, in the person of Jesus, And the New Testament will often present Jesus as a new Moses. I mean, it opens like this in Matthew. Like, think of the comparisons. When Moses was a baby, you may or may not remember this story, but when Moses was a baby, uh, the Pharaoh at the time was was killed. This is not the the Passover. That comes later. The Pharaoh was killing all the the babies, the firstborn of of the Jewish people. But Moses' mom kind of gave him to Pharaoh's daughter And he was protected, right? His sister ends up putting him in a basket and floats him down the Nile, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds him, right? So you get this idea that Moses, as a baby, is protected from infanticide. But then Jesus, right? When Jesus is born, Herod the Great tries to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. So Jesus is protected from infanticide. That's interesting. They both start that way. And then the next time we see Moses, Moses is kind of parting the Red Sea, Well, let me back up. The next time we see Moses, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. And the next thing we find out about Jesus in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus and his family is coming out of Egypt. They had gone there to kind of get away from Herod. As Moses is coming out of Egypt, he goes to the Red Sea. The next thing we see about Jesus is he's being baptized in the Jordan. After Moses comes to the Red Sea, He leads the Hebrews for 40 years in the wilderness. And immediately after Jesus comes through or is baptized in the Jordan, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. After the 40 years in the wilderness, they divide up the land once they get there into 12 tribes. 
After Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, he appoints 12 disciples. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Yeah. Moses is always kind of going up on the mountain to hear God. He goes up on the mountain and, you know, here's, you know, you'll have no other gods before me. And don't take the Lord's name in vain. Or, or well, I should back up. Don't make any graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, remember or, uh, the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your mother and father and so on and so forth. But then every time Matthew wants to talk about Jesus saying anything, he goes up on a mountain. And he'll say, you have heard it said, and he quotes Moses. But he says, but I say to you. And so you see this authority that Jesus has, not just authority to, to kind of um, rule over the demons and cast them out, but an authority to kind of interpret the law, to, to explain to people what do these laws mean, how should we understand them. And it's, it is that that I think can be quite difficult in our setting. Like we think of God as someone who's kind of, I don't know, out to get us. Someone who's quick to judge us. Someone who has a set of rules, and if you break the rule, God's going to get you. Like he's, he's, he's kind of almost out for us. But that can be, that can be farther from the truth. Any, any rule that God has is not for the sake of rules. God's rules are, are not arbitrary. They're not, and they're not for the sake of some ideal. They're actually for us. Paul, in a different passage of Scripture, well, in a different letter to the Corinthians, he'll say that, that the letter of the law can kill, but the spirit of the law can give life. The letter of the law, like that's following the rule for the rule's sake to think that somehow it's the rule that will save us, as opposed to the idea that's behind it, what it's there for. Jesus, will, Jesus kind of runs into conflict with the Pharisees about this. At one point, Jesus uh, is, is healing someone on the Sabbath, and there's an objection. Not an objection to that the person got healed. I mean, who could object to that? but an objection, an objection that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. Like, if you're going to heal somebody, you should do it the way the Lord wants you to do it, which is some, some other day of the week, right? Not on, you know, Friday night or Saturday morning. Not that day. Some other day. And Jesus will say, look, people were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath were made for people. And as the person... The Son of Man, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And for the, that's in at least Mark's version of that story, when Jesus said that, for the first time in the story, the Jewish leader said, we should kill that guy. Like, that's the statement that gets them first so riled up that they want to do Jesus in. So the idea of rules and laws can be difficult for us. We sometimes, again, we... We put the law at the center, or we put the law over people, where the center is really God, and God's calling us to put people over everything else. Like, that's what we should value. There's this uh, wonderful organization called The Bible Project, and we've used some of their videos before. They're animated, but they're really well done. And they have one on the law that I'd like to share with you now. Let's take a watch, and I'll, I'll be right back.
You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just gonna continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. 
So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. I don't know what else to say too much, really. I mean, that's, that's, that summarizes it about as quickly and about as well as I've ever seen. And I, I know that there's probably, you don't watch a lot of cartoons, you know, we get to a certain age and that's kind of our past, but I, I feel like the animation even, I enjoy. So this authority that Jesus, that Jesus speaks with, again, it's, it's not just the authority to kind of overcome the spiritual, right? To always be triumphalistic. We've told that story, particularly in my tradition in the Pentecostal church. We've become so triumphalistic, we, we, we can't seem to face reality sometimes. But, but this, this is the truth. This is the gospel truth. That this is not simply a matter of rules or laws. We are a part of a big story and it's God's story and it starts that God created and that God loves and though we have rebelled and done what we shouldn't God still loves us as his creation and that Jesus is at work to make this right and when we have rules or laws Paul will come along and say look I know that there's this rule that we've been following. And for those of you who are are enlightened, you realize that the rule's a bit antiquated. It doesn't really apply. And so you think in your freedom, you should just, I don't know, embrace life. Eat, drink, and be merry. I guess they were becoming Epicureans, right? But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the most important thing is not about your freedom. The most important thing is about the well-being of the other. Like, what's, what's driving Paul's kind of interpretation is not just whether or not it's right or wrong, but how does this affect my neighbor? Like, even if it is right, if I do it and it hurts my neighbor, then that's wrong. 
because I shouldn't do things that hurt my neighbor, which is a remarkable thing for a Jewish rabbi like the Apostle Paul to say. Like, I get it. You know, once again, this doesn't seem to apply very closely to us because food sacrifice to idols is something we don't do a lot in Polk County, sacrificing animals to idols. But just, just a little bit of context there. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and in Corinth they had lots and lots of temples. I mean, uh, Strabo, the Roman historian, mentions 33 different uh, religions. Not, not, not denominations or churches, like 33 different religions, worshiping 33 different gods, right? So you might worship Apollo, or you might worship Asclepius, or you might worship Aphrodite. And at all of those places, the way they worshiped was to sacrifice an animal to the god. But once the animal was sacrificed, you had the meat. And so the meat would be sold, and it would be cooked, and then it would be eaten. And so eating at the temple was kind of part of worship. We come to a table in our worship, and we talk about eating meat, right? Eating the flesh of Christ. It's in the, it's in the verbiage that we use. That verbiage coming to the table, eating the body and blood of Christ, it all comes from this ancient idea of religion. That, that's where it originated. And so there were people that felt like, well, what happens if I go down to the market, the open meat market, and I, and I buy some meat? What if that meat had been sacrificed over at the temple to Aphrodite? Would I then be worshiping some other god? And so they, they got themselves kind of all worked up about it. And then Paul says that one thing. I thought it was really remarkable in that passage. He says, look, food doesn't commend us to God, whether we eat or whether we don't eat. And again, I want you to remember who's saying this. He is a Jewish rabbi. Eating kosher was so important to them. What they ate and what they didn't eat. How it was prepared, how it shouldn't be prepared. Who got to sit down at the table, whether or not they were ritually unclean. Right? All of those ritual laws of dietary purity was a really important thing for them. And Paul's saying, food does not make you right with God, whether you eat it or whether you don't eat it. What makes you right with God is whether or not you prefer the other. Like, that's what we do. That's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. The letter of the law can be used actually to damage people. But the spirit of the law, true laws, God's laws, will always lead us to care for the other. And so that's how we'll know. That's how we'll know. You know, as it says, we can, we can break up the Old Testament and just look for the rules. And people obviously have because they counted them. There's 613 of them apparently. But that's not kind of the best way to come to this story. The best way to come to this story, again, is to focus on the main character, God, and the main point of the story, that God created us, that God loves us, and that God wants us to love each other. And so that's what we need to do. So Carol had mentioned earlier that people felt this, this sense of, of heaviness. And we can experience, I think, a sense of heaviness 
for all sorts of reasons, right? Sometimes we judge ourselves pretty hard. Sometimes we're judging others. Obviously, in the midst of a prolonged pandemic, the, the distance that we have from each other, the, the struggles that we go through, the, our friends and family that are sick, I mean, the, the political upheaval, the social upheaval, the, the way in which we can't, we can't seem to treat anybody well, but especially people of, of uh, a minority race or gender or what have you, it, it can be heavy. But know this, my brothers and sisters, the heaviness is not a judgment from God. If God gives us any heaviness at all, God only gives us the heaviness of the burden to care for the other. And that's the only burden we should carry. So know, know that God loves you and that God wants you to love others. And when it comes to following the rules, when it comes to the authority, to the one who can cast out demons and who can reinterpret Moses, what did he say about the law? It could all be summed up in just this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that is the gospel truth. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.